You guys quiet down much faster than first service. And we have more people here, second service than first service, so it's like crazy, but anyway. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Timothy. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, Darren has got four Bibles in his hands. I'd love to bring you one. Just raise your hand. He'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. We're going to look at chapter 3, the first 15 verses out of the 16 verses that are there. We'll get the 16th verse next week. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 15. All right, let's dig in. Paul writes to Timothy, verse 1, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus." These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The title of my study this morning is Godly Leadership 101. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word. And we, Lord, uh, invite your presence here, Lord. We know that... that uh, You have a desire to speak to our hearts, to show us things in our lives that we need to hear, that we need to uh, bring into our lives, Lord, and and apply to our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us open ears to receive all that you have for us today. We pray, Father, that you'd bless our time together. Lord, we also want to lift up the kids downstairs as they're learning your word. The youth, as Gabe is teaching them, Lord, speak through Gabe and uh, allow your words just to touch their hearts. And Lord, we pray that you'd bless our time together. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, to be born again, we pray that you would especially touch their heart this morning. We commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The following is a short quiz consisting of four questions that you might find someone interviewing you for a job promotion might ask, just to see whether or not you're qualified to be a good leader. Questions are not that difficult. Number one, how do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? Think about it. The correct answer, you open the refrigerator, put in the giraffe, and close the door. That question, they say, test whether you tend to do simple things in an overly complicated way. Question number two, how do you put an elephant into a refrigerator? 
You may say, open the refrigerator, put in the elephant, and close the refrigerator. Wrong. The correct answer is, open the refrigerator, take out the giraffe, put in the elephant, and then close the door. That, that test, they say, tests your ability to think through repercussions of your actions. Question number three. The Lion King is hosting an animal conference. All the animals attend except one. Which animal does not attend? Correct answer, the elephant. The elephant is still in the refrigerator. Okay? That tests your memory. So if you didn't get the three questions right, now we're going to do the fourth one. Okay? You get this one. There's a river you must cross, but it's inhabited by crocodiles. How do you manage it? Correct answer, you swim across. All the crocodiles are attending the animal conference, so there's none in the river. I don't know what job asked those questions, but that question answers the question whether you learn from quickly from your mistakes. Yet when it comes to godly leadership, what do we mean? What do we mean when we use that word leadership? If you were to define it, if we were asked to define it in one single word, the word would be influence. The late President Harry Truman often referred to leaders as people who can get others to do what they don't want to do and make them like doing it. See, there's a wide spectrum of titles used for leaders within the church in our country today. I mean, you have the pastor, then you have the lead pastor, then you have the teaching pastor, then you have the preaching pastor, then you have the teaching elder, then you have the senior pastor, well, then you have the campus pastor, the associate pastor, the teaching minister, the preaching minister. Then you have deacons and elders and stewards and bishops and and rectors and, and vicars, whatever those are, I mean. Regardless of what title may be given, when you open up your Bible... You see, the whole subject is very simple because there are only two designated leaders in the early churches, elders and deacons. And for that reason, we have just three points this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, we're going to look at the elder. Number two, we're going to look at the deacon. And number three, we'll look at the church. Now, let me say this before we even get to the role of elders and deacons in the church. Every Christian is in the ministry. The moment you became a member of the body of Christ, you are in the ministry. You've been given gifts for the ministry. It's not just for elders or deacons who do the work of the ministry. We all do the work of the ministry. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We're all being equipped to do that work of the ministry. That's what we are called to do. And so all of these things that we're about to read apply to all of us. They are godly characteristics that should be evident in all of our lives. Now this brings us to point number one, the elders. Look at verse one. This is a faithful saying. Paul is saying, uh, you can count on this to be true. Five times he uses that, that phrase, a faithful saying. It, it's in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But then he adds, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now that word bishop can throw people from time to time. In the second century, it began to describe a man who was uh, over a group of churches. Being raised Catholic, you know, my first impression of the word bishop was the guy who wore a pointy hat, you know, and, and a red cape and carried around a stick. But, but the New Testament use of the word bishop, it, it's the same 
the same for the word pastor or elder. It sometimes translates as, as overseer. They're, they're synonyms of all the same name. It's important that we understand that these terms are, are interchangeable. They're all the same people that we're talking about. A bishop oversees a congregation. An elder has the um, idea of the, the man's position and maturity and respectability. And then there's the term pastor. Now, the word, the term pastor means to shepherd. And its greatest emphasis is on feeding, that it's feeding the flock of God. Then the only place that you'll find that word pastor translated as pastor is in Ephesians chapter 4, 11, which is interesting because it's two words made into one. It says pastors and teachers, but it's really one word, pastor, teacher. So you see, when you find the word pastor or elder, they exhorted to feed the flock of God, which is among you, as Peter says in his words to the pastor. That word feed is the same word translated as shepherd. And I believe that, that it's translated that way because the primary job of the pastor is to feed the sheep, God's people. You may, may say, so, so what do you feed them? Well, he feeds them spiritual food, the Bible, the Word of God. Years ago, when I first came here to, to pastor the church, we had a sign out front, both corners, that said, Calvary Chapel, where the sheep like to eat. And I had a picture, this picture I found, of three sheep eating, standing around an open Bible. You see that there. And I had people ask me, oh, you're the, the church on the corner with, with, with the sheep. They're, they're eating that book. Why are they eating that book? Okay, okay. They're not eating the book. They're feeding on the Word of God like sheep because we're like sheep. And, and, and the Bible is God's Word. So we eat like, like the Bible, like the Word is food to us. So we eat. Forget it. So we got new signs. Um, but that's the picture here. All that to say the word bishop does not mean a head honcho type of guy with a really big pointed red hat. No, it's referring to what we would call a pastor or an elder or an overseer. Now, how many should you have in a church? Well, I believe as many as you have need for. You know, the Bible doesn't say. And since the Bible doesn't say, then, then I don't think people should get all uptight and, and, and irritated and angry if you don't have a whole bunch of pastors or elders. I mean, if you have a larger congregation, you're going to need more elders there, a part of that congregation, because the spiritual needs are great. If you have a smaller congregation, you don't need as many. Uh, you know, as many as men that are qualified to be an elder, according to First Timothy here, uh, that's what you're going to need. Now, I want you to notice something. Verse 1 says here that Paul says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. If he desires, if he desires. The word desire means a strong emotional desire and longing for. In other words, it's okay to be uh, to, to have the desire to be an elder. It's okay to have a desire to be a pastor as long as it's a God-given desire. Sadly, there are those who step into ministry where God really hasn't called them to be into that position and it ends up a disaster. We'll read about it uh, shortly where it says it shouldn't be one greedy for money or desire for power. It shouldn't be someone who has those weaknesses in their lives. Or maybe someone, it shouldn't be someone who says, you know, look, I'm just tired of my job that, that, you know, that I do. Maybe I'll become a pastor. All they do is golf all week and just spend a half hour on Sunday morning teaching the Bible. That's not the case. Trust me. It shouldn't be someone who feels they have to rule over people. It shouldn't be the type of people who always have to have the limelight. And so in their insecurity, they want to be in full-time ministry. It's a very, very dangerous and can be very damaging place to be. I believe that a man that desires to have that office should humble himself before God and seek the Lord and really pray and examine his own heart as to why he wants to do that. 
James tells us in James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. That's why it has to be a God-given desire. What I mean by that is that when you are really focused on the Lord and He is your desire and He is all that you want and what you begin to find is that your, His desires have become your desires. God then gives you the desires that He knows what is best for you. Now at that point, then you can claim the promise found in Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because God has given you those desires and they line up with what God has for you in your life. Now, this goes for, for everything, not just for the role of an elder or pastor in the church. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart where whatever God has called you to do. Now, let me say this. Those that God calls, He also equips. God looks for our availability, not our ability. And as you make yourself available to God, He will equip you and give you those opportunities to serve Him and to glorify Him. People have asked me, well, Tom, how did you get started in the ministry? I tell them, well, 37 years ago when I got saved. I mean, I found in my own life, I was so thankful that God saved me and forgave me my sins that I just wanted to be used by Him to, to work in other people's life in the same way that He used people to work in my life. And I'd go to church every chance I could get. I mean, Sunday morning, Sunday night, once a night, Tuesday men's study. I mean, I meant any way I could be there, I wanted to be there to hear the Word of God. Man, I wanted to serve. I just didn't sit around my house, you know, waiting for Billy Graham to call me to, to come, come cover for him, you know. Still waiting for that call. It hasn't happened yet. But I just remember thinking, what can I do for the Lord for all that he's done for me? And within six months of getting saved, man, the Lord opened up this big brother, big sister ministry. And, and, and I thought, man, this is before we had our own kids. I thought, man, I, didn't, I was raised without a dad. I could be a big brother for, for someone. And so I got involved in that ministry. And, and then it went from there to, to getting involved in the usher ministry. I was always looking for a good seat. So I thought I can help someone else find a good seat. I can do that. Then the Lord called me to work within the children's ministry and then to work with teenagers in the youth ministry and then went to overseeing the usher ministry. And, and then after years of serving the Lord, I found that, that I walking with the Lord. Man, hey, I like to teach. And I gave that a shot and, and found my desire was to teach more and more. And the opportunity opened up for me to, to teach in prison. Not that I was in prison. I didn't have a, <laughs> in prison, a prison opportunity. I went down to the prison to teach and I would leave after I was done teaching. Um, but then it went from there to, to teach in a home study. And, and before I knew it, God called me to be the pastor teacher. Now let me say what a wonderful thing it is when God places that desire on your heart to serve Him and to be used by Him and then He opens up those doors of ministry opportunity for you. You get blown away. Let me tell you, 18 years ago yesterday, my wife and I pulled into Springfield, Missouri two bright yellow rider trucks and her van right in the middle between and we had, you know, I was driving one, my in-laws were driving the other one and, and we pulled into our house and, 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 and God called us to, to pastor this church here 18 years ago yesterday. And I can tell you that I absolutely, absolutely have no regrets whatsoever. Because when God does the calling, God does the work and God gets all the glory. And God has done a great work and a great work through this little yellow church on the corner. And I'm excited about what God is going to do, continue to do in our church here. So that's why Paul says if a man desires an office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now what a great blessing it is and what a good work it is to be an overseer of God's church, to be that under-shepherd, to be feeding the flock of God. 
But let me tell you, it's also a, a privilege and it's very, very humbling. That God would use and choose to use any of us is amazing. Now, let's look at verses 2 through 7. And I want to point out three qualifications that the Lord requires for someone desiring that, that office of an elder. We'll spend most of our time on number one, which is his personal qualifications. Look at verses 2 and 3. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Now, let's break down this list. Now, though this list is very challenging, and for me, I've never studied this without being convicted in my own heart as I looked at these things, uh, uh, but we need to look at these. And, and you might be saying, well, listen, Pastor Tom, I, I have no desire to be an elder, no desire at all to be a pastor or in leadership, so I'm just going to tune out until I hear you say, let's all stand for the last song. No, don't do that, okay? Again, these are character traits that should be in all of us as Christians. Uh, that is, most of these same things are also found elsewhere in Scripture applying for us in our daily walks. So Paul begins with number one. He says we must be blameless in verse two. Now, you may say, I've got that one down. I don't take the blame for anything that I do. (laughs) That's not what this is saying, okay? That word blameless means that the man's life is lived in such a way that if anyone were to accuse him of something, it wouldn't stick. In other words, you're living a life above reproach. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you're sinless. There was only one person that was perfect and sinless, and he died for you because we're not perfect or sinless. Human beings sin. Pastors are human beings. You do the math. I know this from personal experience. They do sin. They falter. They do make mistakes. But their intention of their life should be that they are living a life above reproach. See, that word blameless can also be translated unrebukable. So that you're living your life in such a way that no one can rebuke you. See, again, that doesn't just apply to pastors and elders. The next personal qualification, Paul says in verse 2, is that the elder pastor must be the husband of one wife. Now that little phrase has caused a great deal of confusion and controversy in the church. It's been interpreted by some to mean that the elder must be married. For others, that, that the elder should not be married. To others, it means that the elders cannot remarry even after they're widowed. And to others, they say, well, that means that an elder could never have been divorced. And finally, one more say that they're saying that if you want to be an elder, then you can't practice polygamy or have a mistress, which was common in the New Testament Greek culture. I would say that one for sure, yeah. But, but all these interpretations go way beyond the words themselves actually indicate. The phrase translated into English literally means a one-woman man. In other words... You, you, they're not attracted to every girl they see. They, they, they're not constantly eyeing somebody or someone else's wife. They don't have the wandering eyes. It has to be evident that that elder is to be committed to one woman, his wife, period. He must have a, a good marriage as evidenced by how he treats his wife. And there's good reason for that. For one thing, a marriage is an example of Jesus Christ's love for his church, our relationship with the church, with Jesus Christ and the church. And so an elder's marriage should communicate that illustration. For another thing, elders are called upon to counsel. And, and probably 95% of all Christian counseling, guess what, deals with marriage counseling. So how can an elder counsel unless his own marriage is where it needs to be? Now, I'm not saying that an elder has the right to divorce his wife, remarry, 
and be devoted to that wife, stay in ministry with that one woman, and then a few years later, divorce that wife, and then stay with the ministry of that. I mean, sadly, there are pastors that have been married and divorced several times, and they continue in ministry. And the problem there is that it violates the first requirement, that of being blameless. And so they're not living above reproach. They've been married and divorced several times. And I think the reason that people are afraid to deal with the subject is because divorce is such a private and emotional and delicate issue. And let me say, I might have been misunderstood last week when I said that divorce is just legalized adultery. That's not always the case. But I recognize that it is a touchy subject, especially as I counsel people struggling in their marriages I cannot imagine anything more painful. It's very difficult to have a spouse who's been taken from you by a tragic accident or by, by some sickness and die. But I believe it's far worse for, for, for someone to go through a divorce. It's a tragedy of tragedies. And I've seen the hurt and the pain that couples go through because of it, the children, that, that, the, the suffering that they go through. And it's an issue that, that we most don't like to deal with. But let me say this. We need to be careful when it comes to to marriage and divorce and remarriage, that we don't become rigid or hard or legalistic. God is gracious and God is forgiving and God is a God of second chances and startovers and the only unforgivable sin is that of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejecting Jesus Christ. Now there are those that say that, well, if a man divorces his wife before he was a Christian and then remarries and becomes a Christian, then he's still disqualified for being a pastor. And they, they take this to mean married only once. Listen. I believe first, or 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. And again, there are those that have a hard time with this, and it's a very, very delicate topic, divorce and ministry. And sadly, it does happen. Because if Satan is going to attack a marriage, he's going to want to go for the top. He's going to want to go for the, the pastor, the elders, those in leadership. I'm so thankful that God has abundantly blessed my marriage with Lisa and and I would encourage you to pray for my marriage. I would encourage you to pray for the the marriages of the elders here at this church because Satan would like nothing better than to destroy our marriages. Well, that was a tough one. Let's move on. Next personal qualification, Paul says in verse 2, is they they should be temperate. That basically means to be calm. Okay? Just be calm, would you? Okay. Okay, just blew that one. Okay, let's move on. No. That means to not be flighty or nervous, uh, uh, constantly jumping from one thing to the next. He's to be sensible. Basically, it's a fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Self-control. That needs to be evident in an elder or pastor's life. And again, it should be evident in all of our lives. Then he says, sober-minded, which doesn't mean that a pastor can't have a sense of humor, which I am thankful for. People get confused with sober and somber. I think there's far too many pastors that are way too somber out there. Okay, let's open our Bibles. and let's, Okay, would you give me a break? Listen, I take Jesus Christ and my relationship with Him very serious. The rest of my life, I find complete humor in it. <laughs> Reminds you of a story that C.S. Uh, uh, Spurgeon tells of an irate woman approached C.S. Spurgeon and scolded him for his humor in the pulpit. Well, replied Spurgeon, you may very well be right, but if you knew how much I held back, you would give me more credit than you are giving me right now. (laughs) See, sober-minded means to think clearly. Who wants a a, a pastor or an elder that can't think straight or has fuzzy thoughts? And then, Paul says, an elder must be of good behavior. 
obviously, as opposed to bad behavior. Actually, that word carries with it the idea of, of being modest. Remember when we read the woman should be dressed in modest apparel last week, that same Greek word is translated good behavior here. Next is hospitable. Hospitable is one that would be willing to take in strangers. He's open to meet the needs and the concerns of others, their spiritual and their physical needs. In other words, an elder is, 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 is available to the congregation and that his family understands that availability. Being hospitable basically means that you are a, a, a people person. I mean, I've known pastors that have said, well, I love to teach, it's just the people I can't stand. Well, then you shouldn't be in the pulpit, okay? It's like a shepherd saying, man, I'm a shepherd, but I hate those sheep. Let me tell you, it can be difficult at times because sheep do bite every now and then. And as an elder or one given to hospitality, you may get bit every now and then. You know, we, we, last year, we, we, Ron and, you know, Ron Duncan invited the, the young man here from our church, from our outreach ministry, and, and, uh, and we was coming to the church, and, and he kind of wigged out. He was on drugs, and, and uh, uh, he threatened to, to shoot up our church. And, uh, you know, we had to have him arrested, and he spent time in jail, and hopefully he's on the right track now and, 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 and getting his life together. But from time to time, you take those chances. Now, God is our protector, and God watches out for us, but, but that means to have hospitable. You're not going to say, oh, I'm not going to take that guy, and he looks really weird. No, you're, you're going to want to help everybody. Now, let me say, again, uh, uh, sheep do bite, so we need to be careful. But, and then the end of verse 2, the pastor elder should be able to teach. See, a pastor has to feed the flock. He has to be able to teach. See, you can be a Bible teacher and not a pastor, but, but you can't be a pastor and not a Bible teacher. And I do believe that able to teach means that the bishop, the elder, the pastor should have the gift of teaching, not only to, to teach the truth, but also to, to be able to refute error. He needs to be a man of the word and able to use the word of God wherever it needed. Now, I'm not saying they're comfortable with coming up to the pulpit here and, and teaching on Sunday morning or or, you know, on Wednesday night, but maybe in a small group or even one-on-one, you know, that gift has got to be there. And there's certainly a time that it takes to develop that gift that, that God has given to the elder, the pastor, and teaching. You know, I mean, if, if, if someone says, well, we really have a great pastor, he just can't teach. Well, then I question whether he's been called to be a pastor. See, because God's calling is God's enabling. All right, moving on to verse 3. Paul says to Timothy, the elder, the overseer, the pastor should not be given to wine. Now, that's not whining. Some pastors are really good at whining. Oh, it's so hard. I don't know if I can go on. No, he should not be given to wine. The idea is, is here is drunkenness. He should not get drunk. Now, I personally believe that Scripture teaches that a person in leadership should practice total abstinence. In the Old Testament, Aaron and his sons, the priests, were strictly forbidden to drink either wine or strong drink when they went into the tabernacle to minister before the Lord. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5 tells us, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, to guzzle wine. Rulers should not crave alcohol, for if they drink, they may forget the law and not give justice to the oppressed. These these were men in leadership. Rulers should not. Those in, in leadership should not crave alcohol. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 5.22, What sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast about all the alcohol they can hold. But I want you to notice something here, and that is how Paul mentions wine, and in the very next phrase, he mentions violence. He says in verse 3, Not given to wine, not violent. Listen, alcohol has been a major cause of violence. 
It's a very powerful drug. Now, again, if you're not in leadership, I don't believe the Bible teaches that you can't drink. But I would say, in my opinion, that we as believers should stay away from it because it can lead to so much more compromise in a person's life all under the guise of Christian liberty. Oh, I got this liberty and I got that liberty and this liberty. And before you know it, you make you look no different than the rest of the world. Next is an elder or pastor should be not greedy for money. In other words, they shouldn't be money hungry. Now, I don't think we need to say too much about that other than you can turn on the TV and see a whole lot of unqualified TV preachers out there who are now multimillionaires because of fleecing the flock of God. And they're going to have to answer to God for that. So Paul says, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome. It means peaceful, not covetousness. That's, you shouldn't love things more than you love God. So those are his personal qualifications in verses 2 and 3. Next are his family qualifications. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Another should be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his house, own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, the word for rule means to, to go before, to lead. He needs to be the leader in his home first before he can be a leader in ministry. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean that your kids are perfect. Okay? And it may mean at times... They may need at times some major adjustments need to be put into place to get these kids back on track to where they're going. Because they're all little sinners. We're all sinners, saved by grace, right? And we've got to keep, lead them in the right way. But, but if you're doing the best you can with the ability that God has given you to lead your family in all godliness, then I believe that's what it means when he says you rule your own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. This brings us to the third qualification of a pastor or elder, his church qualifications. Look at verses 6 and 7. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So he begins with saying, not a novice, okay? Not a, a new believer, okay? Not someone that, that has just accepted Christ, because it's foolishness. It's dangerous to put a, a, someone uh, into a, a, a ministry uh, position like that who just came to know the Lord. Uh, here, you know, here's the Bible. Why don't you go teach a Bible study? Uh, I haven't got a clue. And here's the danger that, that Paul says, because you can be puffed up with pride and you can fall into the same condemnation of the devil. What was that? It was pride. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Maybe you recall the story of an old, actually told an old story about a young preacher right out of seminary who was getting a real reputation as a, this great preacher. And he was invited to speak at this church and expecting to wow the congregation. He, you know, he strutted his way up to the pulpit. But then something happened. His mind went totally blank. He made an awful mess of the whole thing, forgetting what he was going to say. It was a total disaster. He came down from the pulpit, a humbled, broken-hearted man. What happened? He asked a senior minister. The wise, seasoned preacher counseled, Son, if you would have gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you would have been able to come down the way you went up. D.L. Moody put it this way, Be humble or you'll stumble. Okay, I, I like that. See, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, how foolish it is for you to boast in something that you have, that, that you have no, no way of, of getting it, something that God did in you. God uses you and I in the ministry in some way. How foolish it is for you to think that anything that, that became of us. It's like, it's like you know, 
thanking the hammer for building a house when the contractor did it. You know, it doesn't work that way. Then one more church qualification we see in verse 7. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, the people who are on the outside, those are non-believers. Those are maybe your, your neighbors, you know, that's you know, a reference to non-Christians. And, and what this is saying is that you should be able to go everywhere that your pastor is gone or that elder is gone, every place where they do their everyday business, where he bought his car, where he buys his groceries, and the things that he does with the non-Christians, and then for them to be able to say, when you ask them about this elder, this pastor, they would say, oh yeah, he's always polite, man. He's, he's never grouchy. He's always got a smile on his face. He never tried to cheat me out of anything or rip me off or lie to me. That's why I never tell you where I shop or where I buy my cars. Or No, that's just a joke. Listen, if you have a lot of business dealings with the same people the pastor does or the elders does, and they say, boy, that guy, man, he just ripped me off. Man, what a jerk he is. He pastors your church. He's an elder at your church. Really? Listen, that goes for all of us, you know, not even in leadership. Man, you don't want someone going, you know, to your neighbor and saying, what do you think of your neighbor there, you know? And they go, that jerk, man, he throws his trash in my yard, his dog barks all night, and, and that music is blaring. No, we all need to have a good testimony to those on the outside. So that, number one is the, the New Testament the elder. Now, number two, we have the New Testament deacon. Now, we're not going to spend all the same time we're just spending on the elder, on the deacon, because not that they're not important, but because a lot of the same qualifications for the elder tie in with the qualifications of the deacon. Let me just point out a few things and then we'll wind this up. The word for deacon there is the word diakonos, which means servant. So the spiritual leadership is in, is in more of the hands of the pastor, the elder, whereas the deacon is more the physical needs of the church. Not that the the pastor and the elders should take care of the physical needs of the church as well. We all need to, to work together. But, but the deacons are more designed for the physical needs of the body. So Paul says a few things about them in verse 8. He says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued. A double-tongue, uh, uh, it's, it's not mentioned in a, with the elders, which doesn't mean that they, should be, they can be double-tongued. It just wasn't mentioned. But, but what that means is if you think about, you know, for those of you that are older, maybe you remember the old uh, TV episodes of The Lone Ranger and Tonto. And Tonto would say, white men speak with forked tongue. You know, you remember that and maybe the reruns. But, but it's exactly what that word is. A tongue that says two things, one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. Listen, if you've got deacons that are gossiping, it's a very bad thing. So many churches have been destroyed by gossip, and maybe I'll oh, do it in the name of prayer. You know, no, okay, wait a minute. Okay, come on. Then the same as the elder, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Look at verse nine. Holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In other words, they need to know what they believe and why they believe it. They need to be right on with what they believe. Okay, you can't have you know a deacon, you know, an usher of the church, a deacon coming in and say, oh, I don't believe in the Trinity, and I don't believe in, in the deed of Jesus Christ. And I don't believe. That. Okay, wait a minute, then. You know, you, you got to be uh, hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Verse 10. But let these also be first tested, and let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Listen, if you want to be a deacon, then start deaconing, you know? If that's even a word. Start, start serving. See, the sad thing is most people want to have an office, but not fill an office. They want the title, but they don't want the responsibilities. And I find it better to let those be deacons instead of telling them they're one. That's why, you know, that way they're not looking for recognition. They're just serving the Lord. 
Now look at verse 11. Likewise, the wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Now, it's interesting when it comes to deacons, the wives are mentioned. It says that the, the qualifications for a deacon or the wives must be reverent. That word there uh, means uh, is honest. It, and then he says not slanderers. Now that's an interesting word. The word is in feminine and it can be translated she-devils. I mean, that's, that's what it means. I'm not making that up. It's what it means. A deacon's wife is not to be a she-devil, which basically means she's not to gossip as well. You know, uh, you know, only thing worse than a gossiping deacon would be a gossiping deacon's wife, I guess. You know, come together, but they're both bad. Then she's to be temperate. Temperate means wise. A deacon's wife needs to have the kind of inner peace that governs her. And then faithful in all things. In other words, everything that she does, she needs to be faithful in what she does. She needs to be faithful to her husband, faithful to her children, faithful to, to the ministry, faithful to Christ himself. Then verse 12. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. We've already talked about that already, and we won't go there again. Verse 13, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Two things will result when the service of a deacon is done in the right way. It will create a sense of appreciation on the part of the congregation. Deacons will have a, a good standing for themselves. Their own ministry will be widely appreciated and received. People will want to come to them uh, for help. And the second thing Paul says, the most interesting, he says, the deacons earn for themselves a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. See, when you serve the Lord with your whole heart in whatever ministry He gives you, especially if it's on behalf of the church, you develop a wonderful sense of God working in you, helping you solve problems. And this creates a deep sense of confidence in God and boldness to let people know what Jesus can do for them as well. It's having the boldness to say, listen, if God can do this in me, man, he can do this in you. I mean, if God can raise me to be a pastor, if you knew me before, I mean, do you think, Tom, he's a goofball. God, I mean, God can do He can do this in you guys as well. Finally, point number three, the church. Look at verses 14 and 15. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we're going to look at the truth of God's word next week. But I found this interesting story in a debate with Dennis Prager, a believer, atheist Oxford University professor Jonathan Glover, uh, in a debate with Dennis and Prager, let me start over again. There's this debate between two guys. Okay, Dennis and Prager, uh, he's a believer, and then this Jonathan Glover, he's an atheist from uh, Oxford University, a professor. And this atheist said, it doesn't really matter whether a person has a belief system that is biblical or godly. The important thing is that they believe in something. Prager replied, imagine, Professor Glover, that you're in downtown Los Angeles. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Your car breaks down. You get out, you hear footsteps. You turn around to see ten big men walking towards you. Would it make a difference to you if you knew that they had just come from a Bible study? You get the point. It does matter what people believe. And praise the Lord that we are part of the church of the living God, the pillar, the ground of truth. Because sadly, in our day and age, when it comes to truth, there are those in church leadership who have given in to settling for less. And I said, we'll look at this next week. But let me say, we're living in an age where we've reduced the standard of what it means to be a Christian leader or what it means to be a pastor, teacher, elder, or deacon. Something is so wrong. 
The church has got to be the pillar of God's truth, holding up God's word, standing upon the word of God. I mean, that is what we need to be as God's church, a place where people can come and find the truth, find Jesus Christ. Listen, my prayer this morning is that God would bring all of us to that place of serving him faithfully in this congregation or really wherever God may lead. I'm convinced that there is a lack of leaders in life in general. Godly leaders especially are lacking. So where do they come from? I would pray that they come from this church, from churches, uh, from churches just like ours as we look to put God first in our lives. And then I would hope and pray that the Word of God patterns your lifestyle. If it does, then the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, this is the way the church is supposed to run. This is the way the church is supposed to work. If you put into place the roles, the responsibilities, and everybody does what they're supposed to be doing, then what happens is you don't have church splits. You don't have little cliques that sit around and cause trouble and whine about this and whine about that. You don't have misunderstandings. Why? Because everybody has a job to do. You see, I, I might be talking right now to tomorrow's deacon or elder, tomorrow's overseers. And if I am, and I want to encourage you to hang in there. Hang in there. Continue to serve the Lord as a deacon or as an elder with the same characteristics that make a godly man or a godly woman. Every Christian is in the ministry. Again, the moment that you became a member of the body of Christ, you were given gifts for the ministry, not just for elders and deacons who are to do the work of the ministry. We all are. We need to apply all these things to us. They're, they're godly characteristics and it should be in all of our lives. Finally, let me close with this. A husband and a wife rose one Sunday morning. The wife dressed for church, but when it was just about time for the service, she noticed that her husband hadn't moved a muscle. Perplexed, the wife asked, why aren't you getting dressed for church? Because I don't want to go, he replied. I see, said the wife. Do you have any particular reason? Yes, I have three good reasons. First, the congregation is cold. Second, no one likes me. And third, I just don't want to go. The wife replied wisely, Well, honey, I have three reasons why you should go. First, the congregation is warm. Second, there are a few people there who do like you. And third, you're the pastor, so get up and get dressed. <laughs> Listen, if God has put you in a position of leadership, wherever you are, you've also got to learn to be a good follower. Good followers make good teachers. Good, good servants know how to effectively lead. Jesus told us if you're faithful in the small things, he will give us greater responsibilities. Maybe you're, you're laboring in relative obscurity right now. No one is aware of the hard work that you're putting in each and every day. And maybe you're wondering, man, will my day ever come? Will God ever use me like that? Remember that Jesus says your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Listen, before we close, we've been looking at 1 Timothy and it's kind of like having a family meeting. I said this last week, talking about how things should be in the family of God, what God, Godly leadership should look like. If you're new here this morning, you've kind of sat in on a family meeting. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ. I want you to know that God loves you so much. He died for your sins. Uh, you know, he, he sent us in to die for your sins. Uh, and if you just, just uh, you know, turn your life over to him, God will do that work in your life to cleanse you of your sin and, and get you to that place of, of I mean, promise you, eternity in heaven and, and, and just a, a life full of joy and peace. So if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to give your life to him this morning. As soon as service is over, the elders of the church are going to come forward and they're going to be available if you need to prayer. If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to, to come talk to them. You know, we're told in James chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
and the prayer of the faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Help, help us as elders to do our job to help you. Uh, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this one more verse. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who much give account. Let them do so with joy, not with people. That would be unprofitable for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that gives us understanding of your word, Lord, that we might apply these truths to our lives. And I know, Lord, that we've talked about deacons and elders, but, Lord, these are things that we know that you want in all of our lives, Lord. Characteristics that, that, that want to, to, to be evident in our lives, Lord, that the world can look on and see, Lord, that we're different than the world. And Lord, I do pray for the elders here, Lord, that you've raised up. I pray for their marriages, for our marriages, Lord, that you would protect our marriages. I pray that for all the men in this church, Lord, that we would be the leaders you've called us to be in our homes, Lord, loving our wives as you, you love the church, Lord God. Lord, we lift up the deacons, Lord, those Lord, in the usher ministry, those that take care of the physical needs of this church, Lord, and the, the taking care of the, the things that are, that are going on in this building, Lord. We just uh, pray for them and their marriages as well. Lord, for just for most of us, Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to live this life that's pleasing to you, that we might glorify you with our life. And then open up those opportunities, Lord. Give us the desires of our hearts, Lord, but we want to make sure those are your desires. Lord, thank you for this time this morning. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one last song together. <clears throat>